0: This is episode 148 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode goes back to Men's Roundup 2015, Standing in the Gap. This is session one from Friday night. I hope if you uh, you do have a Bible with you, I'd ask if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It is a great privilege to be with you. My, my prayer has been um, that this weekend would serve sort of as a uh, an epicenter of something glorious that God will do in your life. I don't know why you came this weekend, um, but the Lord knows why you're here. And uh, oftentimes, if you've walked with him long enough, you've probably discovered that oftentimes his reason for bringing you someplace is different than your reason for getting there. And I pray that um, you'll discover what his reason is for you um, I think I have some clue for that. I do hope you have a physical Bible with you. I use my Bible app sometimes. I look at the Bible on my phone quite a bit. But there's nothing quite like just the incarnate text, okay? Um, this, is, this is mine. You can see it's, it's coming apart here. It's falling apart. Uh, I, I write in it. I don't know how you feel about that, but I feel fine about it. So I write all over inside my Bible. Once I had it in my backpack with a, a, a bottle of water and it, the, the dye and the cover sort of bled onto the pages and uh, there's a bloody fingerprint in here somewhere. Um, or it could be chocolate, but I <laughs> choose to believe that, it, that it's blood. Um, if you saw this, so if you were walking through the parking lot and past my car, just you know, at the mall or whatever, and you saw this this ratty book sitting like in in the passenger seat of my car you and, you know you wouldn't stop you wouldn't think you know anything of it you certainly wouldn't be tempted to break into my car to get to get this book but what if i told you what if i told you that that god like the god right everybody picturing that god god wrote a book and in that book, like the God, the one true God, wrote a book, and in that book, he put the meaning of life, like the mysteries, the things that people for thousands and thousands of years have tried to figure out, have climbed up to mountaintops and, and dug deep into the valleys, have rent their clothes, have, have died trying to discover that that God put the mysteries of the universe in a book. And you were walking through the parking lot, and you saw this book in a car, in the passenger seat. And you looked over, and and you knew that, that book has the mystery of life in it. Like the secrets of the universe are in that book. You would be quite tempted to break into that car, wouldn't you? So this is how I want to come to the Word of God with you this weekend. You, you, you have a Bible, I don't, I don't really care what format you have with you, whether you have your phone or computer or iPad or what have you, you have a Bible. Let's come to this Bible as if God is speaking to us in it, as if the Spirit has actually breathed out these words, as, as if the words we read in it are actually God talking to us. Can you imagine if that were true? Well, let's believe that that's true today. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We're going to chew on these two verses all weekend long, just like a dog on a bone. We're going to just gnaw on this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy this is the word of the lord Uh, i don't believe that we can pray too much so let's um, ask the father to bless our time together i want to ask him uh, to help us see the glory of his son in this passage heavenly father we we believe we ask that you would help our unbelief we come to your word so lackadaisically so reluctantly so religiously, so dutifully. Father, help us to come to your word as if it's oxygen. And we are suffocating unless you speak to us. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you that you are not silent, that you don't leave us hanging, but you give us the very words of life. We ask that your spirit would be here. Yes, he is welcome to be here. We have sung to you that your glory is what our heart longs for. Don't let us be liars, please, Father. We ask for the glory of your Son. We ask that you would show us his glory, knowing that it's by seeing his glory that we are transformed. And it's in, hidden in his great name that we pray, amen. Uh, one of my favorite Bible passages uh, in, in, in the Gospels is the encounter with, um, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And you're probably very familiar with the story, but I resonate uh, on a lot of different levels with that woman's story. Um, If you remember the text, you remember, um, you don't have to turn there, but if you remember sort of why she's going or um, the time that she's going, we kind of read between the lines because it says she goes in the middle of the day. The time that it says she's going is in the middle of the day, which is not the normal time people would go to the well to draw water. You're usually going sort of in the cool of the evening uh, or in the cool of the morning. You're not going right in the heat of the day. And so we can sort of gather, we deduce by what we learned from her backstory, that perhaps she's going at the worst time in order to be alone. Like she doesn't want to encounter anybody. And so as she's sort of approaching the well and, and she's looking out into a distance and, and, she, and what does she see? Like right by the well, there's a man standing there. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but just as an introvert, I put myself in her, in her sandals, as it were, and I'm thinking her heart is just just sinking, right? You ever have like your space? And if somebody's in your space, uh, I just um, spent six years pastoring a church in a little town in Vermont. Um, on Wednesdays, I would usually go into uh, Rutland, which was the largest you know, sort of town close to us. There was a coffee shop there. A oh, woo for Rutland, awesome, excellent. Okay, All right, let's not call out Vermont cities, that's not what we're doing here. Uh, uh. I'd go to the coffee shop in Rutland on Wednesdays, take my, my Bible, my commentaries, have my laptop there, my pen and paper, and I'd do my sermon prep on Wednesdays. And what was great about this coffee shop in Rutland is that um, it was in this, uh, this old bank, and they had uh, the vault was still there, the big vault door was there, and my favorite table was inside the vault, it was in this room in the vault, and hardly anyone ever went inside the vault. And so Wednesdays, I would sit inside the vault in this table in like my own little sacred space. But there were some days I would show up and I'd gonna, you know, walk up to the counter to, to order my coffee and I'd look over to the right and I'd see two little feet sticking out. Somebody was in the vault. And my soul would just shrink up. Like, how can I prepare the word of the Lord for the people if I can't get inside that vault on Wednesday? <laughs> But praise God, when the place was empty and I'd get in there and I'd start my sermon prep, sometimes people had the audacity because there were multiple chairs in the vault. While I was in there, they would walk in and sit at the table. Like it was their space too. So I'm putting myself in this woman's shoes and I do know something a little bit about shame as well. And she's seeing that there's this man standing there and she walks up and I'm just thinking, in, in her mind, she's thinking, oh no. Oh, I, I just wanted to be alone, and Jesus starts talking to her. Jesus, as you know from reading the Gospels, is not a great respecter of personal space. (laughs) Jesus is not very seeker sensitive, and he starts going deep quickly, and she does what any of us would do, which is try to keep it on the surface, right? She tries to keep it on the sort of level of chit-chat, And Jesus is not playing chit-chat, he keeps going deeper and and deeper in the conversation and and she's sort of thinking, well, he wants to talk theology, so let's talk theology. And she'll, you know, she brings up the whole thing about Jews worship here and Samaritans worship here and all this sort of thing. And and Jesus says, you know, what's uh, true worship is those who worship in spirit and truth. She has come, what for? To be alone, to be by herself, to be in her shame, and just to get a, a bucket of water, But Jesus knows that she is parched. She is parched in ways that that bucket of water will not satisfy. In fact, knowing her story and kind of revealing her story to her, he's essentially explaining to her that your whole life has been spent moving from one oasis in the desert to another and thinking you were finding water, and instead you've just been throwing sand down your throat your whole life. Let me give you living water he says. Water that will satisfy you. Water that will make it so that you never ever thirst again. Jesus doesn't do what nine out of ten of us would do if we encountered this woman at the well. If you were sitting down over coffee with someone or you were hearing somebody's story and they were telling you all about you know, their, their life and, and how many men they had been through and how they were shacked up now, you and I would say some variation of this. Let me give you some advice. Can I just give you a little bit of advice? The, the way you're living it, it's, it's, it's not great. You, you know, maybe try ChristianMingle.com or something like that. <laughs> now, Jesus knows that an encounter with the living God is infinitely better than any set of tips or steps or life hacks. Because that's the problem with good advice. It doesn't go it doesn't go deep enough. So if you were sort of like you know building a highway, you're constructing a highway and you're wanting to get through a mountain, you gotta put the highway through the mountain. Well you could put some dynamite sort of on the face of that mountain and, and blow it up and you would you know you would move some rock, you would kind of You know, get the, uh, you know, shear the face off of that and you'd have to keep going and keep going and keep going. But if you really wanted to create a tunnel, you would drill a hole down deep into the mountain, put the dynamite down inside there and blow it up and really move some rock. Jesus Christ knows that what we need is not good advice because that's just like blowing the surface off of the thing. What we need is the glory of Himself because that's like putting the dynamite deep down inside in our souls. Well, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, is the dynamite put down deep in our souls. And we're just going to tonight look at this first phrase in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. I don't know if you understand the implications of this. I want to kind of just sort of tease out three of them for you tonight. The first is this. We'll just... Move right into it. To be a chosen race, to be a chosen race means to be chosen before time began. To be chosen before time began. Theologically, most of us believe that God did not choose us based on any merit in ourselves, but practically, you and I live every single day as if we have somehow earned credit with the Father. As if he chose us because we somehow proved ourselves or earned our way in. But salvation goes so much deeper than that. It goes back before the earth was a gleam in the Father's eye. And it goes forward into the endless days of the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation is infinitely deep, Matthew 25, 34. The kingdom was prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Jesus says. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before time began, God was looking forward and he saw you, he saw miserable little you and all of your stupid sins and all of your failures, all of your inadequacies, and he said, I want that one. And you believe that. It's almost like, um, it's almost like the wedding vows, but better. Right, you stand up there with your, with your bride-to-be for a minister or a judge and you make this commitment to say for better or for worse. And you're judging worse based on previous experience, right? You know her little quibbles, her little flaws. You think she doesn't pass gas, you know. <laughs> You know her little hang-ups. You've had your little squabbles. And so you know something. So you know what you're forgiving. You you know her. And she knows you. And you're worse than she is. You know that. And she stands up there and says, I commit my life to this person. But you're walking into a great unknown. You don't know what actually worse is going to be. Well, Jesus does. He's the bridegroom who stands up there with his bride and knows everything they've ever done, but also everything they've ever thought. And every feeling they've had, every negative feeling, every temptation, every struggle they haven't yet acted on, but also every terrible thing they will ever do into the future, and he says, yes, for better or worse, this one's mine. What a bridegroom this is. We try to get through our life day to day, mainly just to survive. Try to build up our 401K. Try to get to retirement, or some of us, you're just trying to get to the weekend. Meanwhile, God has been scheming from eternity past, a great epic kingdom story, where his glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, and he wants you in on that it makes some of our life goals and it makes our bucket list look stupid like what's a bucket list anyway why would you have a bucket list these are things i got to do before i die because heaven's going to be a letdown like you're going to get to heaven and be like i really wish that i had bungee jumped in the grand canyon you know but this is the mindset that we have we're not we're not thinking in the level of eternity. Most of us are living as if this life is all there is. We know theologically that's not true, but we live emotionally, psychologically, and practically as if it's all a lie. Some of you here this weekend are living as if dying is the worst thing that can happen to you. Do you know that dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you? Jesus says flat out to his followers, don't fear him who can kill the body, rather fear him who can take your body and your soul. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Dying after you die is the worst thing that can happen to you. We put so much energy, so much emotional energy, so much mental energy, so much of our strength goes into just surviving the day, just creating our perfect little well-ordered life. Do you know that 100 out of 100 kale eaters die That's why I don't touch the stuff. They don't tell you that when you go in. Out of, I'll go further. 100 out of 100 CrossFitters die. In Al, Al Mohler's book, The Conviction to Lead, he writes of an old preacher who told a group of younger preachers to remember that they would die. He said, they're going to put you in a box and they're gonna put a box in the ground, or they're gonna throw dirt on your face, and they're gonna go back to the fellowship hall and eat potato salad. (laughs) Now, it's funny, but but is it? I've tried thinking recently about my great-grandparents. I don't know nothing about them. Maybe their name. Our great grandchildren will likely know zero about us. Couldn't tell you about our personality. Maybe they know our name. Maybe they know the family tree. We will be footnotes in some archive in this earthly life. That is the best that we can accomplish. Why are we living for that dot on the endless line of eternity? It makes no sense of the gospel. It's time to think with eternity in our minds. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that he has written eternity in our hearts. It's time to live as if we have eternal hearts. So, to be a chosen race is to remember that you are chosen before time began and that you will live when time is no more. And living in this grace that is given to us is to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. You are a chosen race sons of God. To be a chosen race, secondly, is to be chosen purely by grace. To be chosen purely by grace. I believe that I was called to ministry when I was in junior high school. I really didn't have any kind of uh, conception of what that would look like um, into the future. It was a foreign alien concept for me. I didn't grow up in a ministry family. I grew up in a Christian family in in a church, but there were no pastors in my family. And so there was nothing for me. I mean, no one was pushing me that way. I had no aspiration to that. But one day during youth camp, when I was in the seventh grade, early in the morning, I was having my morning devotional time, and I found myself reading about the call of Moses, to go um, demand that God's people be released from Pharaoh's clutches. And I'm reading sort of how God is, is, you know, speaking to Moses, and some of it is resonating with me on a personal level, because if you remember, Moses says that whole thing about being slow of speech, and it, it might have just meant that he wasn't eloquent, but I was a stutterer from kindergarten all the way into college, and so this whole thing about being slow of tongue, that really, you know, stuck with me, but just the whole scenario God comes to Moses and, and chooses him, and Moses comes up with all of these reasons why he should not be chosen. He starts listing all of his inadequacies and his his own deficiencies. But here's what I think is really happening: Moses is doing what almost all of us would do. We are listing our inadequacies under false humility so that someone will come back to us and say, No. Like what Moses really wanted is for God to say, Moses, come on. I know everybody. Of course I would choose you. You're a beautiful, unique snowflake. Huh? You're the cream of the crop. Of course I would pick you, Moses. Well, he doesn't do that, does he? He, he? he basically confirms all of Moses' affirmations of his own inadequacies. He basically says, yeah, you're right. You are kind of an idiot. You're exactly right. But what does he say? I made your tongue, I made you and I will be with you. In fact, your limitations, you being a liability is is actually kind of the point. Because if you were something else, that's less glory for me. This is why God wants sinners. This is why God uses weak, fleshly, idolatrous people so that we will know that all of the praise goes to his grace and not to us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you get the sense, do you get any sense from Jesus' calling the disciples that he's really sort of you know, calling the cream of the crop to him, right, the sharpest tools in the shed, as it were? The, it's almost like he's looking for the nincompoops, for the losers. Like, where where are the real dirt bags? Those are the ones that I want. And they can never quite catch up, right? One of my favorite examples of this is this sort of extended scene, especially as you're tracking through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus does this miraculous thing with just a little bit of food. He feeds 5,000 people. The disciples see this. They see what Jesus can do with just a little bit of food, feed 5,000 people. Well, then a little bit later, you just have to go a few days later There's a crowd of 4,000 people. Now, I'm not a math major, but 4,000 is less than 5,000. And they have more food to start with. Smaller crowd, more food. The disciples say, How are we going to feed all these people? It gets better or worse depending on how you look at it. Jesus feeds the 4,000. Later, they're in the boat. And Jesus begins using this sort of um, object lesson. He begins warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of Herod. And the disciples say, is he hungry? Where are we gonna get bread? How do, we, how do we feed, how are we gonna feed these people? Thirteen of them. They can't figure out how they're gonna eat. Is there any clearer picture that the people God is choosing um, He's setting the bar really low. But But that's good news. Isn't that good news? Thank God he sets the bar incredibly low. In fact, what he says is, bring me your nothing because that's what you have. Bring me your nothing and I will give you my everything. In fact, the only way, the only way to miss out on Jesus Christ's everything is to bring something. Can I trade in just this little work? You've cheapened the whole thing. And we come in with our shirt full of good deeds and we think we can earn Christ's righteousness with that. And we come down and sit at the table and he says, no deal, you bring me your wretchedness. You bring me your sin and I will cover you forever. But you show up trying to claim your good deeds, claim your merit, claim your strengths, claim your gifts, claim your talents, your theology, your church attendance, your Bible reading, and the whole deal's off. You you can't buy what he's giving us. It is purely of grace. I don't know about you, but this is so helpful to me. So helpful to me. He's looking for the liabilities. To be a chosen race is to be chosen purely by grace. Thirdly, to be a chosen race is to be made entirely new. To be made entirely new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The idea, um, the word choice here that he would use race, I mean, it's like he's essentially saying, your DNA has changed. Your insidest insights have changed. This is not behavior modification. I'm cleansing your soul. I'm putting myself deep inside of your heart. That eternity that is in there, it needs to be filled with eternity. And only the gospel is scaled to eternity. This is why he says you're a chosen race. Everything about you has changed. Everything about who you are has changed because of the gospel. 1 Peter 2.9 helps us in every moment, because if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross and out of the tomb, in every moment, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you know who you are, and you know that you're not who you used to be. This is exactly, I, I mean, Peter, um, it's, so, it's so interesting to kind of read between the lines, of the relationships to, with, between the apostles, especially as you're reading through Acts, and you, you read sort of Paul's words in the letter to the Galatians about Peter, and he's like, yeah, the so-called super apostles. I love Paul. He's just like, yeah, those guys. I guess they're something, right? And he talks about confronting Peter to his face. Did you remember what he confronted Peter to his face about? It was about the hypocrisy, Right? Well, the Gentiles were there, Peter's eating with them, but then when the Judaizers showed up or the men from uh, you know, Jerusalem would show up, Peter would be like, I don't know those guys, and he would go sit with all the cool kids in the cafeteria. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Why would you do that? If the gospel makes one man, if the gospel makes a new race, why would you treat people based on race like that, based on ethnicity like that, based on preference like that? And what Paul says to Peter is... is is this. You are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Why would he say that? You would think he would say something like, you're breaking the don't be a hypocrite law, right? I mean, he was breaking the don't be a hypocrite law, but that's not where Paul goes. He says, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Why would he say that? Because the gospel changes who you are. Why would you live like how you used to be? You're somebody else now, You're not living according to your true identity. If you are chosen, you are royal, you are holy, you are owned by God, you're not who you used to be. You're not where you used to be. In fact, you are totally, totally and eternally secure. So much that passes for masculinity and manhood especially in the world, but sometimes even in the church, is really just a working out of insecurity. That's my conviction. I don't know if you share that conviction, but that, that's my conviction. we got to prove ourselves, let people feel the weight of who we are, show our manhood in some way. It's sort of We spiritualize the sort of machismo thing. It's it's all driven by an insecurity. Thank God that he drives this insecurity away with his grace. What would it look like, men of God, what would it look like if you lived every day in light of the grace that has chosen you and secured you? Do you know that if you are in Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but his righteousness is inscribed on your heart, so you're counted righteous in him. And do you know, if that's true, also, you are united to him. The Bible says that we are hidden with Christ in God. Ooh, I don't know about you, I love that picture. Hidden with Christ in God. It says that he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So, like, you're, you're here, you're here because I can see you, but you're also there. There. In a sense, you're also there. You're just waiting for yourself to show up. And if you are united to Christ, if you are hidden with Christ and God, if you have been uh, crucified with Christ and you have been raised up with Christ and you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, if he's made these outrageous, audacious promises to you like he's going to prepare a place for you that where he is, you will be also, and no one can snatch you out of his hand, and he will never leave you or forsake you, then this means you are as secure as Christ is. Now, how secure do you think Christ is? It doesn't get more secure than that. What would it look like if we lived like that was true? If we gave up our own life, stopped living for the moment, began thinking with the heart of eternity, began looking through the lens of the gospel to see we are a chosen race. What if we embraced this new life in Christ, the life that he has given us, what would it look like? In his landmark sermon, Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death Defying Missions, David Platt shared about Romanian pastor Joseph Zon, who recounted a time that he was being interrogated by six men. And pastor Zon said, to one of them what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me this is an encounter between my god and me my god is teaching me a lesson through you i do not know what it is maybe he wants to teach me several lessons i only know sirs that you will do to me only what god wants you to do and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my god Reflecting on this moment, Joseph Zone says, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. He says later, during an early interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. (laughs) Your supreme weapon is killing, my supreme weapon is dying. Here is how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Zone would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. He says, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided it was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach wherever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. And didn't Jesus say something like that? yes he did. He of course said those who seek to keep their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for his sake will find it. But I remember him saying to the sisters mourning their brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I mean he he pressed it home. Do you believe this? Like, never die, like even if you die, you live. Jesus said this, Jesus said this. It changes everything. If this is true, it changes everything. It makes the difference between the seeking of worldly fruitfulness and prosperity and true fruitfulness and prosperity. The enjoyment of the riches of Christ and the treasures of heaven. To be a chosen race is to have your identity rooted in Christ. To be planted in Christ, to be fruitful in Christ, to be prospering in Christ. The world can't move a man who is planted in Jesus Christ. The world can't conquer such a man. Richard Sibbs says that the Christian is an impregnable fortress, he is a man who cannot be conquered. In fact, the world is changed by such men. We see in the book of Acts as Stephen and the apostles are preaching and they're bringing the gospel into new places. It says, oh, I love this phrase, they couldn't cope with what was being preached. They couldn't cope with it. It was discombobulating them. Is the world being discombobulated by the kind of Christianity that American evangelicalism is known for? I don't believe it is. In fact, they could take it or leave it. They don't even have to deal with it. But real, glory-fueled, gospel-centered, bold, I-cannot-be-conquered proclamation of the gospel, they have to deal with it. They may reject it, but they have to deal with it. How did these men turn the world upside down? Were they experts? Were they brilliant minds? Were they dynamic speakers? Paul himself says, I'm not really much to listen to. If you were like sort of surfing through preaching podcasts, you would not subscribe to the Apostle Paul. I mean, by his own admission. So what is happening there? These were men who were captured by the grace of God and walking in the power of the Spirit. Here's another brilliant picture of a blessed man, planted, fruitful, prosperous, secure in the gospel. We are told that in A.D. 404, St. John Chrysostom, the early church father, was brought in before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom responded, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I will take away your treasures. Chrysostom said, no, you cannot for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. And Christ's system said, no you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Brothers, what if we lived like that? What if we lived like that? The fallen world would have to adjust around us if the chosen race acted like they were a chosen race. This is how you escape the corruption of the simple desire that confronts you on that computer screen. This is how you escape the lure of comparing yourself to others around you. This is how you stop jockeying for position and and, and angling for a platform and hating people and judging people and treating people unkindly. And I think Peter felt this in his bones, and that's why he's saying this stuff to us. When you know about Peter, we just talked about how inauspicious the disciples were, and Peter stands out as the most inauspicious of them. Peter, Peter, jumping out of the boat, sinking down. Peter, the rock. N.T. Wright says, Jesus calling Peter the rock is like when you call a fat guy slim as in it's a joke, the rock, ear-chopping Peter. Well, I remember one of Peter's more shining moments. It comes at the end of John chapter 6. If you remember, Jesus has fed the crowd of 5,000. We love that part, but do you remember what happens at the end? He starts preaching, right? They've all shown up for the all-you-can-eat buffet, and then someone starts giving the devotional, and they all leave, just like they always do. And he's preaching really difficult things. Things that are scandalous and offensive today, much less in that day. Like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to live. And the crowd finds this completely offensive. Rejects it. They all leave. In fact, it even says that some of those who had followed him left. Found it too difficult. So not just a crowd that had shown up, but people who had in some way sort of attached themselves to his ministry found this a teaching too hard. I'm not not doing this thing. This is too much. And so in the end, it's just Jesus and his closest followers. And Jesus looks at them and says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter, do you remember what Peter says? Where would we go? Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. And what does this mean? It means he has tasted and seen that Jesus Christ is good. And not only has he tasted and seen that Jesus Christ is good, it means he has lost his taste for all the op- all of the op- options in the world are no options at all. Where would we go? Well, when push came to shove, Peter found a place to go. And Jesus even telegraphs, like tells him, as things are heating up, And the betrayal and the arrest is coming. And Jesus has been telling them all along, I've come to die, I've come to die, I've come to die. And they're constantly thinking, he must mean metaphorical, he must mean spiritual. This this can't be right. Because in their view, the Messiah who comes overthrows the government. The Messiah who comes has a sort of military and, uh, you know, he uh, you know, overthrows the oppressors and sets up his own government. In fact, there were lots of men who came along before Jesus and claimed to be the Messiah. And people would follow them and then they would be executed. And everyone would go, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. So they would, you know, go follow somebody else. And so Peter is seeing this happening. He's seeing this, oh no, this is happening again. And Jesus says to him, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, there's no way I'd ever deny you, Jesus. But he does. And Jesus was, of course, executed. But then, we we all know what happens next. Three days later, he's back. And I love what the women are told Go tell the disciples and Peter. (laughs) Jesus wants to see him. Like if I'm Peter and I hear this, wait, he said my name? Well, yeah, well he said the disciples, but he named you Peter. He said your name. Oh man. You'd think he would be rejoicing that his Lord and Savior has risen from the grave. But Peter knows the last, the last thing he did in relation to his Savior was deny him. And he also knows that Jesus taught some hard things about denial. Like, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. He said that. And so this is in Peter's head. It's right, it's right here in the back of his head. And he finally, he comes face to face with Jesus. And I, I, love, like, I love this scene on the beach where they're eating breakfast. Right? Well that'd be amazing to eat breakfast with Jesus. They're eating like fish sandwiches or something. And I'm just picturing Jesus kind of looking at Peter like, How you doing, Peter? You know, you doing all right over there? And Peter's thinking, what is going on? But then they have their moment. Do you remember their moment? Face to face? Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? What do you think Peter felt in that moment? We know what he says, but what do you think he felt? Like, inside, he's thinking, oh, man. And so he's desperate. Jesus, you, you know I love you. Jesus, you know I love you. I think in his head, he's going, please believe I love you. Please believe I love you. Your prayer's like that. When you've spent days, weeks, months, years living in such a way that Jesus Christ is not your supreme treasure... And then you come and you sing these songs on Sunday mornings or you come to your Bible study or you go through your little ritualistic prayers and you're saying, you just desperately hope, it you just want to keep it right here on the surface. You don't want him to come any further inside and you just hope that he believes that you love him. Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. And then he asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, Jesus, you know I love you. Why three times? Because he denied him three times. What's Jesus doing? Oh, what is Jesus doing? He's he's not, he's not trying to make him feel bad. He's not rubbing it in. He's restoring him. In fact, he's, speaking to him in this way this sort of threefold way to show that as complete as your sin is that is as complete as my covering of it is in fact there is more there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us and there's a lot of sin in us brothers but there is more mercy in him you don't think that would have stuck with peter Peter, who eventually went to his own death on a cross, where the history books tell us, as he contemplated going to his own cross, he said, I, it, "I don't even consider myself worthy to die in the same manner of my Savior. Please crucify me upside down." And they crucified him, feet feet up. First Peter two nine is how you know you aren't lost that you haven't slipped through the cracks, that you aren't forgotten or forsaken. You are a chosen race. At some moment, the light poured into the room of your heart. And it wasn't based on anything you had done or, ha- or, uh, or hadn't done. It wasn't based on where you came from or what you accomplished or what you knew intellectually. About 10 years ago, I spent every night on the floor of my guest bedroom, my life in ruins, wondering how do I keep from taking my own life. And about a year of that, the dark cloud over me just desperately believing, "This, this has to be true. This is all that I have. I believe that most times, more often than not, God is not your only hope until God is your only hope. And he was all I had, and I like the bleeding, I I just was reaching out for the hem of his garment, and he reached down into that room. And the light shone in, and and he said, "I I choose you. I know he didn't love the things that I had done, I know he didn't love or approve of my sin. I know that he wasn't endorsing my behavior and the things that I had done to bring ruin into my own life to create this broken marriage that I was in shame over. But he came in and proclaimed his excellencies to me anyway. And I've never been the same. And my hope and prayer for you is that you will live in this grace too. It is the only thing that satisfies. It is the only thing that gives you life. It is the only thing that gives you power. I don't know why you came this weekend. Some of you are parched. Dry. And it's not for lack of religion. And you're here just desperately hoping to hear something, to feel something. Some of you are pastors and you can't talk to anybody about it because you don't know what they would think of you. And you're the one who has to stay strong and be spiritual and be the leader. But inside you are dying. I know what that feels like. I hope you know that Jesus Christ has been waiting for you here with living water. And he means to satisfy you with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the living God. We thank you once again for your word, which does not return to you void. We ask that your spirit would be here on the surface of the deeps of our hearts, separating order from chaos, speaking peace over the storms in our souls. There is a lot of mess here, and I know that just because there are a lot of sinners here, Father. Father every single one of us, broken in some way, doubtful in some way, tempted in some way, sinful in some way. And There's a lot of history here, and there's a lot of fear here, and we ask that your son would come walking on the waves of this place, speaking words of comfort to us. We thank you for your mercy, we thank you for your grace. Father, we, we, we hand you the blank check this weekend. We give our soul to you as a blank. Write on us what you will. And it's in your great son's name that we pray these things. The precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.